Nehemiah, Nehemiah. Change, change management is hard, and that's kind of what we've seen in this book so far. It's a, it's a book chronologically that's, that's the last in the Old Testament. Although it won't appear at the end of the Old Testament, it's kind of the last one in terms of time. And it's a people coming back from exile. And change management is hard if you're trying to change something in your life or be part of something like that in a corporate environment. And the good news is that there are people that do change management for a living. And there's some key principles we can learn from them. One of them is this. It's going to appear on the screen. No woofum, no change. And you're like, huh? What does that mean? What it means, know what's in it for me, and there'll be no change. In other words, if you don't articulate to people a clear incentive and address the question, what's in it for me, according to this consulting company, you're going to struggle to change. You've got to incentivize people when you're looking at changing things. At the Graduate School of Business, we are still unfortunate to teach. I teach um, sort of finance. I quote a lot from Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. And Charlie Munger had this to say about incentives. And I love using this slide when I teach over to Charlie. He's 99 years old currently, still strong. He says, I think I've been in the top 5% of my age cohort all my life in understanding the power of incentives. And all my life, I've underestimated it. In other words, he's saying, it's been front of my mind that we all seem to process everything by going, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? What's in it for me? But still, I can't actually, I can't actually overestimate it. I still always underestimate it. It's been fascinating when I popped this up. Because when we talk finance, we're often talking about incentives. In other words, if you hit this target as a company, you'll get this bonus. And the reason it's so important is if you get the wrong incentives, you're going to drive the wrong behaviors. And it's a fascinating conversation we sometimes have. Let me give you a few examples. Some of... Um, the students in the mining industry say, you know, Paul, safety is a massive thing for us. We're really concerned about safety. But we often get the wrong incentives in place. For instance, we would say to the whole mine, if we can go 30 days without any safety problems, everyone will get a bonus. So let's do it every month. Let's work together. No safety incidents. That sounds like a great idea, right? Carrot, not stick. Here's the problem. It's day 28. A heavy rock falls on someone's hand absolutely damaging it. Everyone looks at them and says, oh man, you're not going to report that, are you? We're going to lose our bonus. And this poor individual looks around and goes, okay, there's one of me, hundreds of you. No, no, no. And slinks off the mine to some other doctor and gets inadequate medical care, doesn't get provided for with disability grants, and essentially is a victim of a poorly constructed incentive scheme. So some then said, I know what we'll do. We'll will reward good behavior. So if you spot a safety concern, if you see something on the oil rig which is out of line and you report it, we'll give you a bonus because you're like a safety officer. You've spotted something out of line. A rule not being kept, something unsafe, you know, a slippery floor or something. Great idea. Until they started picking up on their cameras, a whole bunch of people going along, damaging infrastructure on purpose, and then reporting, hey, damaged infrastructure. There's, there's countless examples, and kind of boggles my mind every year when we discuss it as a class, how we think we're helping with the right incentive, but actually we're driving dysfunctional behaviors. Now, thanks, Paul, for the little insight into your class. What's the point? The point is that this is so deeply entrenched in us that when we arrive at Nehemiah chapter 3, when we arrive at any passage of Scripture, there's something inside of us that actually always asks the question, okay, but what's in it for me? What's in it for me? Whenever we read scripture, we ask that question. But I think Dick Lucas, a retired uh, British minister, does well to remind us the Bible is for us, but not immediately about us. 
In other words, we should be asking ourselves the question, what, what does this say to me? What's in it for me? What, that is a valid question. But it's not the primary question. There's something bigger going on that we need to be aware of. And so we are going to look at Nehemiah chapter 3, but I just want to front load it by saying, let's not read this chapter now with a primary lens of, okay, we're rebuilding a wall, there's a diversity of people, there's unity, what's in it for me? Let's read this chapter, let's read all of Scripture, mindful that overall, we're actually plotting out what some would call is the great story, the big story of God's hand amongst a bunch of rebellious people like you and I, being extended in love and mercy and grace and goodness, such that when we see that arc of history and we find ourselves in it, something more than just what's in it for me takes place. Uh, our hearts are lifted by a, by a more noble theme. So yes, when we look at Nehemiah, we see someone who's not a priest, who's a marketplace leader, who's comfortable in Babylon, taking on this arduous journey, leading a people out of exile back home and rebuilding walls in record time. We see him making it possible for Jerusalem to flourish once again so that in 400 years time, Jesus Christ can come back into Jerusalem riding on a donkey and be recognized as a Jewish man and keeping Jewish customs and for the temple to be functioning. Nehemiah was a vital part of making all of that happen. But when we read that through our C-point lens in 2023, we can stop and ask, okay, what's in it for me? And we can reduce that message to some leadership principles like I should have good, good ambition and I should take action and um, this particular chapter where they actually rebuild the wall, this is, this is good delegation stuff. You know, how to, how to delegate well. You can't do it all, so how to delegate well. And then next week, we're gonna, oh, sorry, Greg's, Greg's with us next week, but the week after, we're going to see oh, how to deal with opposition, how to deal with hardship. These are, these are not bad principles. I just want to be clear. These are lessons we can learn, but they're secondary to the bigger picture of what does this say about God? What does this say about how committed he is to his plan of rescue, his plan of redemption? What does this say about God and the people he chooses and the way he, he shapes them and molds them, this, this bigger story, right? And all of it, all of us should get us closer to Jesus Christ and understanding his role as Messiah because we've really touched on it, but just to fill you in if you haven't been here, Nehemiah is a type of Christ. Christ. He's a foreshadowing of Christ because, because like Christ, he was in royal places. He was, he was comfortable. He was set. And yet he, he saw something that moved his heart and he moved out in, in action to rescue a people, to, to build up a people, to, to lay down his life ultimately in facing opposition so that others could get life. So we have an opportunity today to read about God's people at work and to learn about what I've called holy diversity and holy unity. This, this incredible promise of us in this room being totally different, having different cultures, different families, different life experiences, different stages of life currently, but yet being able to be united. And we're going to learn that, no, we're not going to physically build walls around this premises, but we are going to create a community of holiness, a community set apart, a community that's distinct, a community that could be described as salt and light, such that others could be included in that community by seeing something of heaven breaking in. You see, we're not called to, to exclude, we're called to be distinct so that we can include people in what God is doing. So Nehemiah chapter three in a lot of preaching series just gets left out and a lot of Nehemiah books gets left out. So 
we're not leaving it out. We're going for it because I think there's some stuff for us. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a bit, comment on it, and then, and then afterwards we're going to learn together. Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 1. Then Elisha, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachor, the son of Imri, built. Keep going. The sons of Harash and I built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of um, Hekaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshulabeb, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Barnar, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Talk about a sad thing to be written about you. They would not stoop to serve their Lord. I'm going to leave out a bit. We're going to go to verse 8. And the words that are repeated the most in this section, if you read it, are these words, next to him or next to them. That comes up a lot. So next to them, Uziel, the son of Honiah, goldsmiths repaired. So we've had priests, now goldsmiths. Next to them, Haniah, one of the perfumers repaired. That must have been an interesting section of the wall to hang out on, right? And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Shalom, the son of uh, Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. He and his daughters. What a cool picture. He's like, let's get in, stuck in, ladies. Here we are. Um, they, they're in there. And Shalom, the son of Kolhose, ruler of the district of Mispa, repaired the fountain gates. Uh, this section now shows the different rulers getting involved. So we've got priests, we've got merchants, we've got goldsmiths, we've got perfumers, we've got sons, we've got daughters. But we've got, now got the different rulers. Um, next to them, Esher, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mispah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory of the buttress. And then a little bit later, I love this bit. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section. These were the guys who nobles refused to stoop. So they're like, okay, sorry guys, bit of a bit of a, la a lack in leadership. Our nobles were so proud they didn't get involved, but we will build another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. And then right at the end, between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmith and the merchants repaired. This uh, whole chapter, again and again, has people rebuilding the wall. It starts with the sheep gate, you might have seen it, and it ends with the sheep gate. That little gate was the shortest path out of the city of Jerusalem to the temple. It's where the sheep would go for sacrifices. So it starts there with priests and it goes anti-clockwise, so that would have been clockwise, so anti-clockwise all the way around until eventually it closes out again with the sheep gate. It describes people working on the wall, putting in the effort, all, all different types of people, united in what they do. And there are three things that I'd love us to learn and apply, uh, reminding ourselves all the time that the first question shouldn't be, okay, what do I get out of this? What's in it for me? But actually, what does this tell us about God? The first, the first big thing we need to notice is that when we read chapter three carefully, there's something introduced here which later would be articulated as the priesthood of all believers. The priesthood of all believers. So when you read chapter three carefully, you're going to notice men and women, sons and daughters. You're going to notice many different towns of the surrounding area. 
you're going to notice many different trades. You're going to see ministers, clergy, and laity, people involved in the marketplace. In fact, the majority of the people are people involved in the marketplace, having to take unpaid leave, having to work the, the wall outside their house and bring their contribution. And what's quite important to note in the story of God is that this is actually quite a change in the redemptive arc of the story so far. Because up until this point, whenever the people have gathered like this, they've typically done it to bring themselves glory. And so the classic story is in Genesis 11, where a bunch of people get together and say, you know what, we don't need God. We're going to build a city. We're going to build a tower of Babel, and it's going to be about us. And we're going to reach to the heavens, and we are going to make this life not about like dinosaur stuff about God, but about the, the progressive edge, about what we can achieve. We're going to build a world where God isn't necessary. Well, that whole project falls in on itself because what's in it for me to the nth degree doesn't create unity. It creates incredible self-centeredness that falls apart. And so what's typically happened is God's had to grab Abram in the very next chapter and say, okay, Abram, not because you're special, but because I'm so full of mercy. I'm going to take you and your family. I'm going to bless you to be a blessing. And he's going to work with that family and bring them through. And he's going to, he's going to work with David. And he's going to say, okay, David, the people are losing their plot, but I want to bless you to be a blessing. And I'm going to use you to, to, to take on Goliath. Or how about Moses leading the people out into the promised land over and over again? What's some of the themes that emerge? It's the people who rebel, right? Who rebel, who rebel. And at some point, Moses just says, okay, God, I know, I know, I know, they don't deserve this. But please, because of who I am, because of what I've done, will you, if it's just for me, keep being merciful to your people? See, up until now, it's been up to a few individuals to essentially be the priests, to represent the people before God. But something different is happening at this moment. You see, at this moment, the priests aren't enough. The clergy can't do it all. That The wall will never be built without a priesthood of all believers, without ministry now being extended to everyone who is part of God's people. From this point onwards, it's going to be ministers that get released into the world, not just ministry paid professionals. You see, what we're going to see is we're going to see a, a wall being built by all kinds of different people. And afterwards, the wall's going to be pronounced holy. <laughs> Up until that point, only priests could touch which is holy. But now, while everyone's hands are on it and everyone's fingerprints are on it, the perfumers, the daughters, everyone, it's going to be declared holy because God has, has increased the, 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 the priesthood. You see, up until this point, there'd be moments, like in Bethel, where, where God would descend, and there'd just be this, this understanding, that, wow, God's here, and the priests would minister, but then it would, it would go, it would, it would stop for a time. There would be the tabernacle and the temple, and there'd be a holiness that would dwell there temporarily. But now there's a broadening. There's something happening here which, which, is, which is exciting for all of us. As I had prophesied a long time ago, he said, you know, that branch of God's people, which has always been known as the Jewish people, that branch is going to be extended. It's going to be described as beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the whole land is going, to, is, going to be, is going to be marvelous because of this people that are now going to be declared holy. It's not a few people declared holy. It's a, it's a whole people. Zechariah in Zechariah 14 says it this way. He says, you know, in the old days, the pots that were part of the temple, they were described as holy because they're getting used for some holy stuff. Those pots need to be protected in the temple. But this is what he has to say. Every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts. 
so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. What are they saying? They're saying that the priesthood of all believers is upon us. Every part is now able to usher in God's presence and to declare his kingdom. Every, every job done, every kind deed extended to neighbor, every, every utensil, every object has now been declared holy and, and, and capable of extending God's kingdom. You see, this is a major progression here. What, we not, what, we, what we've seen here is God declaring a group of people capable of serving him to the utmost and declaring them holy. I want to land this one point by looking at 1 Peter 2, verse 5, 4 and 5. The priest of all believers in the New Testament, Peter writing says, as you come to him, a living stone, this is Christ, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Let that just sink on you. What previously was set aside for a few people once a year is now being declared over all of us. A holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Every pot, every email, every calendar invite, every conversation, every WhatsApp, it has the word holy stamped on it because God's given us his his holy work to do. And why is it acceptable? Why would that ever be true of rebels like us? The people that were rebellious in Moses' time have got the same hearts as you and I. That is our tendency. But yet, because of Jesus Christ, we are acceptable to God and we can be his ministers. It doesn't fall on one person anymore, a David or Moses or a priest because of Jesus Christ, it falls on him, and it means all of us are acceptable to God. So chapter three, if you read it, actually marks an amazing moment where everyone gets stuck in, and at the end, it gets a massive tick of, it's holy, it's good. And what we wanna now spend some time on is just thinking through the diversity of what's represented here. Because perhaps there's a little wisp in your heart that says, yeah, Paul, I get it, but you don't know my story, you don't know how, what I bring, you don't know how different I am, and I'm not sure if I fit in. Well, let's just look at the diversity of what's on display here. You've got a high priest rising up with his brothers, and he's really concerned about the sheep gate, because that's his main gate. You know, that's the gate he uses with his sheep and the sacrifice, so that's where he's involved. But then you've got the goldsmiths, who suddenly are, okay, not using gold, I assume. I mean, they're using stones and bricks, but they're probably going, hey, we're good with our hands. At which point the perfumers are like, yeah, suppose we crush herbs we could probably crush some cement. I, 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 would, I would imagine at that point they could have gone, oh, is this really for us? This isn't really what we're good at. We could, we could like help everyone after a hard day's work. We could perfume them up. You know, that could be our job. You kind of like, you, you appreciate that, that there is a specific need for people. They need to focus on this mission, but you can, you can take your diversity and say, that's a reason for me not to be involved. That's not what they did. And again, there's a dad here who's repaired and he's pulled his daughters in and they're getting stuck in at the same time. You see, when we, when we, when we declare the priest of all believers, we're not told that there's some that get high profile gifts and the rest are just waiting for them to basically stop, you know, and then, then you'll get a chance. No, we're told that everyone has been given a gift, that God is a generous gift giver and that everyone therefore has something to contribute in our diversity. The city would not be built if it wasn't for the diversity on our faith. If it was just up to the clergy, it would not have happened. And so it's this beautiful picture in history again. It would not have been possible without everyone's contributions. We have different gifts and, 
especially in these all hands on deck moments, they're required. Now, we're going to get to unity soon. It's important to talk unity because I think all of us love the vibe of like, yes, I'm different. I'm individual. Woo. Like, we're not struggling on this point. We're like, yes. So we're going to get to unity, but let's just reflect on it. Everyone here has come from a different family culture. And that family culture would have been shaped through generations of the stories told of different family members and what they did or what they didn't do and how that means something for you as you are here today. When I'm chatting to couples before they do a pre-marriage, one of the most important times is to actually ask the question, cool, tell me about your family and how did the marriage that you kind of grew up under, whether it was with a single mom, single dad, or you know, married, what was that like? Who did what? Because that's gonna actually shape your future incredibly. And you think it's normal because you grew up doing that, but guess what? The person you're about to marry also thinks it's normal what their parents did. And it's gonna cause a lot of conflict unless you can get that out front early. You see, we've all got different family histories. We've all got different cultures. We've got different things that we value, different foods, different music, different ways of regarding time. You know, what, what, what is a clock to you <laughs> when you're having a good time, right? Or how about life experiences? If you look back on your years, uh, we're coming up to a 25-year school reunion. You can work out how long I've been out of school now. Well, I've just told you. But you can add 18 to it to work out my age. And it's been fascinating seeing the people trying to organize this reunion and some people blatantly writing out saying, why would I want to get in a room with beep, 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 narcissistic people? Honestly, the greatest thing about school is the day I left school, and then guys are like climbing and going, what do you mean? It was you know, like you can't convince someone who's just posted that, that it was a good time, right? but some people are trying. Here's the point. I, I mean, I had a great school experience, but there are others that are just making it clear. They're not going to be at the reunion because of the life experiences they've had. We're differently wired. We're differently gifted. We all, and this is where I get excited, have a different burning ambition in terms of how God's wired us. There's something inside us that goes, that shouldn't be as it is. For Nehemiah, it was this wall that hadn't been repaired, a, a promise unfulfilled that this people had come back, they'd built the temple, the priests were there, but no one was living inside Jerusalem because it wasn't safe. And for him, that was the thing. Well, guess what? Not everyone had the same thing. And not everyone has the same thing here as we sit here. What is it inside of you that says, no, that isn't right? That's part of the diversity that you bring. And so as a community, we would love to serve you by saying, have you spent time with God? Have you, have you felt a burden from Him? And have you prayed about it and, and started to dream about what a change could look like instead of admiring your problems that you, that you solve them? Have you done that work? I, I'm so excited when I think of some stories in this community. I've heard of a dad who's, who, who's connecting with a daughter, kind of saying, let's, let's read this. And once a month, I mean, once a week, let's connect and talk about it. You're in a tough space, but I'm not gonna just sit back. I wanna, I wanna invest in you. I think of someone else in a work environment that's kind of stuck and doesn't know and fired off the email on the Monday, said, no, come on, like, I feel like God's given me this heart to do this. I wanna do it. Let's overcome the obstacles. There are people that are saying, inspired by what I see here and by the burden God's put in me, I wanna, I wanna trust him to, to solve things and to move things forward. And as that starts to happen, Another angle is to say, well, what are my giftings? Be realistic about what my giftings are. And we want to serve you on our website. If you go have a look here, we've got um, a website that has a um, resources tab. You'll see there right at the top, there's something called the spiritual gifts test. And if you click on, you'll see that um, there's a, a QR code in the corner there. And it's maybe just go back um, to that QR code. Thanks, Shan. Um, and you can put that on your phone and you can go and take the quiz. 
Uh, it's freely available. You can go and check it out. And if you look on the next page, you'll see that we've already kind of articulated here the big buckets of different giftings you can have. Giftings of hospitality, help, uh, prophecy, evangelism, faith, leadership, you know, um, teaching. There's lots here that you can then click on and get developed in. What's, what's the point of all this? It's to say, man, we, we've been entrusted as a priesthood of all believers. But then there's a secondary thing. Of we've all been given different gifts that we bring together. So, the ministry is not monopolized by the ministers anymore. We're all ministers, and we bring incredible diversity. Now, we do that in unity. We do that in unity. That's my final point. A few moments of unity. The one that I love is verse 27. The Tekoites, whose nobles, remember, wouldn't stoop. I mean, what a terrible thing to have written of you. God's doing something. You're on the cusp. You're right there, and you go, nah, not the building stuff. I'm not interested. And these guys are so just aware of God's goodness and the provision of what's happening. They go, hey, we'll, we'll do another section. We're going to make it happen. And, and I love that they made their way all the way around to the sheep gate. They started with the sheep gate and they ended with the sheep gate. This incredible diversity, but yet unity. Now, a couple of things to point out. Notice unity doesn't mean total agreement. There were some people there, like the Tekoites, that were like, nah, not into it, sorry. And they didn't wait and kind of go, oh, okay, sorry, guys, let's make this more palatable. How about just work? They're they just like, well, okay, we're going to still have to get on with it. There's something driving us beyond just unity, right? We'll get to that just now. It also doesn't mean the absence of opposition. We're going to see it the next time we look at it, that, that there's going to be a lot of opposition that they face. And I think this is really the importance of unity, because if we were all just left to kind of find out our giftings and go do them, as soon as opposition hits, we go, whoa, this isn't what I thought. This is a lot harder than I thought. This is a lot more difficult. I mean, I put it down there. So-and-so and his daughters went there. The perfumers, it's easy. Can you imagine? There would have been some days where the blisters were big and they are going, why am I doing this again? What is the point of this? And that's when unity starts to kick in. But here's the important thing. Unity can't be the goal. If you start a project saying, it's a, I want unity, you'll often not get it. Unity is often a byproduct of something bigger. And in our case, unity comes as we apprentice Jesus. It's unity around the highest common denominator. If we all try to figure out how we're going to get on and make unity the number one thing, it's not going to succeed. But if we follow Jesus and we apprentice Jesus, unity comes as this delightful, delightful byproduct. See, I've seen when unity is put up as the major thing, that you can sacrifice truth and you whittle down what you're called to so that you're unified, but you're just going nowhere. Now, here are people that are showing us that when we follow God's calling, unity can be achieved. As you sit here today, there are many different parts of you, right? There's great diversity, as I described. And if you to think of yourself as layered, there would be a rock bottom layer, like the layer of you that really says, no, this is who I am. This is my identity. And at different stages of your life, you might have had something there at the rock, rock bottom. I think of my own life, for a big chunk of my life, at rock, rock bottom, I was a Ronda Bosch boy. It's like, ah, shoulders back, like I am the center of the universe. And if we beat bishops, oh my gosh, then I was an insufferable Ronda Bosch boy, right? Then there was a change where I qualified as a chartered account, like, oh, chartered account. It's like, you can throw accusations at me, wow, bishops, whatever, but I'm a CA baby. I, I made it, right? I might be a male, I might be a Ronda Bosch boy, I might be a Morn, I might have all these different layers but at rock bottom is the identity layer, the part of you that really goes to the core, the, the deep, deep part of you. Now, here's the thing. 
we're all looking for the deepest part of us that, that is the most valuable. And we'll go through stages where we, as a first-year student, I used to laugh at UCT watching the first-year students because it's all about the party there. It's like, I'm a party animal. I'm making it. And then after, you'd, have, um, you'd put on weight in first year. Let's just be blank. And then you'd go like, oh, my gosh, that's unbelievable. Now I'm going to be the healthy me. And you'd be health freak for the second year. And then you'd go, I'm failing. And then you'd go into your academics for year three. It was like the predictable university groove, right? And then year four was like internship, get a job. So it was like you had a different bottom layer every year of varsity, just like predictable. Well, it's still true of us today. What is at the deepest, deepest part of us? C.S. Lewis, when he spoke at Cambridge into graduation, he spoke about the inner ring, and he said, here's the thing you've got to watch as a graduate of Cambridge University, is you're going to now see yourself as part of an inner ring. I, I graduated at Cambridge, and that is going to be the deepest part of you. That's going to be the bedrock. No matter what happens in life, you're going to go, yes, but I graduated at Cambridge. And he said, that's incredibly dangerous, because it's going to exclude you from the, 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 the humanity and the fellowship and the priesthood of all believers, <laughs> which is a much deeper part of who you are when you are included in God's family. You see, and this I've experienced to be true, no matter how many layers you have to your life, if at the core you have recognized the goodness of God towards you, his love that surpasses all understanding, that, that neither life nor death can, can be removed from you, when that is taking root inside of you, then it doesn't matter where you graduated and what you've done. It doesn't matter how big the gap in literacy and culture and background. When you connect with a fellow believer, when you connect with someone who apprentices Jesus, there's a flow of life that just surpasses. You just go, how is it that I feel more comfortable with you speaking a different language in a different part of the world than I would with someone who's exactly the same as me, went to the same school, had the same background, who I should have everything in common with, but yet at the deepest level I don't. You see, the unity I'm speaking about here is not some kind of superficial badge that you take. I'm talking about something at the deepest part of us that we know that we know that we know that we're going to be brothers and sisters forever because of what God has done in our lives. And so we no longer say what's in it for me in circumstances. We need to be aware of our role to play. But we can say something else. We can say, who's in me? <laughs> who's in me? The truth is Christ is in me the hope of glory at the deepest level of my life. His spirit is at work in me. So I can then say, well, because he's in me, I can live a life for others. I can rebuild walls every day. There's brokenness. There's no shortage of that. Where the shortage is is in those who are gonna link their lives and rebuild. I love what Romans 15 verse two says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him we don't go through life going, what's in it for me? We say, who's in me for others? Christ is in me for others, and therefore I can look out for their good, and I can build him up. We, together, would be overwhelmed if it was only individuals called to this. We, together, get to do this as a family, living stones joined together. We can have a time of response now. I'm going to call the band up, and we have an opportunity to... Just soak in the truth that at the deepest level, Christ has redeemed us and he's adopted us into his family. And this is Christ speaking. You could read it in Matthew 11. He says, hey, you know, um, among people born of the woman, John the Baptist, there's no one greater than him. So he's saying John the Baptist has been the most amazing of anyone born of a woman. Yet, this is what Jesus says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. 
Yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying is that when Christ has included you and he's adopted you, his spirits are working you. You can minister, even if you're the least, you can minister to a greater extent with a greater power in you than John the Baptist. It's it's permission to play. It's, It's permission to put our shoulders back and say, Christ, I didn't make this up about me. You said it. The least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he because of who Christ is and what he's promised.